0: Thank you so much to the conference organizers for inviting me to this symposium. It's a great pleasure for me to speak at this symposium and at the Solk Institute. I'm very happy to share uh, the work, our work with you, but particularly I will be working about uh, the program which was started by two amazing uh, scientists, Dmitry Belyaev and Lyudmila Trud. um It's at the Institute of Psychology and Genetics of the Russian Academy of Sciences in uh, 1959. Dmitry Belyaev was an uh, evolutionary geneticist who was thinking a lot about animal domestication and Dr. Trude was so fascinated about his ideas that she moved to work with him uh, to Siberia from um, uh, Moscow University. Uh, so they, um, at that time, there was a lot of debates about what was the first during animal domestication. Is it was selection for morphological traits, or it was selection for production, or domesticated animals are actually results of hybridization of different species. And Dmitry Belayev argued strongly that selection for behavior was the first and the most important thing during animal domestication. And the experiment which he uh, set up kind of formed our um, generically centered view of animal domestication. So to test his hypothesis that selection was so important for animal domestication, he decided to choose the species, silver fox, which is a uh, coat color variant of the red fox, which was bred in captivity at that time for about 50 years, but have never been domesticated. The farm far, far foxes, we usually show uh, fearful and aggressive response to humans, even then uh, that they were bred uh, in captivity since late um, 19th century. Dr. Truth and uh, Dmitry Belayev visited multiple form, farms across the former Soviet Union and selected several hundred of animals who became founders of the future tame strain. So first, they tried to select animals who show less fearful and aggressive response to humans, and then they started to select for foxes who actually showed the willingness to interact with the humans. It's, it's amazing that selection was very fast, In less than six generations of selection, we started to see few individuals who actually was wagging their tails when we see humans. And then uh, what was also an amazing thing which we did during the selection process, we tried to avoid inbreeding in this population. That allowed to have an ongoing selection for, for behavior in this population for many, many years. Um, So, by by 2002, uh, the the percent of uh, individuals in uh, their population was about 71% who we called a light. So, these animals are just extremely friendly. They, you know, all what they want is basically to interact with humans. And I will show the video just in a couple of minutes. And uh, basically, all foxes in the tame strain are tame, but we still have some gradations for them. Some of them more tame, some of them a little bit less tame. Uh, We also needed to have some control population for their studies because we did a lot of uh, behavioral observations, a lot of physiological studies and to have more or less uh, kind of homogenized group of animals whom we can study as a control, we started selection of foxes for aggressive behavior in 1970. And in this case, it was a critical distance distance between the experimenter and the caged animal uh, when animals start to show the aggressive response to humans which count. And of course, the intensity of this aggressive response. So now I want to show you the uh, videos of... From two populations. I don't think I don't need to explain in which case we have tame animal, in which case we have aggressive animal. Uh, so this is a kind of an example of just a standard test, which we are using to, start, to test behavior of these uh, foxes. It has uh, four, four tests, four, four steps, each is one minute long. Here is a little bit shorter version of that. And all these tests are videotaped. So you can see how different their location in the cages, postures they have, uh, sounds they make. Yeah. Yeah. So you can see that the, you know the tame fox wants just to continue to interact, while aggressive fox is just saying you know go away and it's happy happy to be without humans. What is amazing about these behaviors, you can see how different they are, but what is really amazing is that they are genetically determined. We made a lot of different experiments uh, like cross fostering of pups between tame and aggressive moms, uh, even transplantation of embryos, and of course breeding between tame and aggressive animals, which strongly confirmed that these behaviors have very strong genetic component. And that altogether gave us a, um, not only a kind of in, in very interesting uh, uh, results, of very interesting experiment that domesticated folks, but also the model for genetic studies. And that's uh, kind of where um, uh, we started to collaborate with the, with the Dr. Truth uh, group on studying the genetic basis of these behavioral differences between tame and aggressive strains. There are several amazing uh, things about these strains which really helps genetic research. First of all, which were bred separately for many, many generations, but they are outbred. So that means that if you will do the crosses, we can actually have afterwards, we have an opportunity for very high resolution mapping of behavior, not uh, only uh, have very long fragments of the chromosomes where it will be extremely difficult to identify the genes which have effect on behavior. Um, it's also very important because these foxes are living under standard conditions and we have an opportunity to test their behavior at precise st- time points and we uh, have very similar experience of interaction with humans, so which is always uh, not the case uh, with the dogs. So to, to, to do genetic studies to actually to understand what were the genes for which uh, belief and truth were selecting these foxes for so many uh, generations, we, we set up experimental pedigrees where we bred uh, aggr- aggressive to tame fox in uh, m- multiple individuals in a reciprocal manner that mom can be aggressive and that would be a tame fox and vice versa. We produced F1 individuals, and then we bred them back to tame strain, then we bred them them back to aggressive strain to produce a populations, and also we bred them uh, to each other to produce F2 type of population, almost like drosophilogenetics. And uh, then this, we analyzed behavior in all these crosses uh, about the same way, uh, exactly, the, sorry, exactly the same way as I just shown you on the video. Uh, we tested behavior of each individual in this population multiple times. Uh, we had a better situation than Dr. Trude uh, 40 years ago. We have video cameras, so we could record all their behavior, and then analyzed that behavior with a set of traits from video records. Then we did uh, principal component analysis and um, an- came up with uh, measurable um, um, behaviors for each individual in these populations. And on this figure, you can see how different behaviors of aggressive animals from tame animals. uh, From um, uh, F1 is kind of show behavior intermediate between aggressive and tame individuals. Backwards to aggressive, very close to aggressive population. Backwards to tame, very close to tame. And we have also F2, which is a little bit more aggressive um, based on the principal component one than F1 population. So what these figures show us that this behavior is highly heritable. It's a very strictly, you know, heritable pattern of behavior, and that is a you kind know, of great trait to try to uh, to map to, in genetic studies to try to identify the underlying genes. <coughs> So we genotyped our perigrees with uh, dog-derived microsatellite markers because we didn't have any special resources for the fox. And we identified about 10 significant QTLs uh, which we call the quantitative trait loci, the regions in the genome which uh, most likely have signals of uh, um, selection which have effect on behavior. And particularly was interesting uh, fox chromosome 12, where we identified at least two loci which have a strong effect on behavior in these foxes. Uh, so now when we have this loci, what is our next step? Of course we want to identify genes and uh, pathways which are involved in behavior. But what is, was also very interesting when we looked at, the compared the region which we identified in a fox, uh, it, this region overlaps with uh, the most significant region which um, Dr Wayne group found, which differentiates dogs from wolves, but in the research which was done by dr Wayne we don 't really know what was that region is responsible for. It differentiates dogs from wolves, but we don 't know if it actually has any behavioral uh, importance or not and it' was quite amazing that the most significant our most significant low size overlapped with the dog low side. Of course, we do not expect that it will be the same mutation, and we do not really think that it always will be the same genes which are the same between dogs and foxes which are involved in uh, friendly behavior or aggressive behavior, but uh, we expect that the pathways probably will be to much extent the same, and to be able to get uh, Inside of the, these pathways, we can do a lot of different studies with this. Because now, finally, we have the uh, genome of the fox, the so, complete genome was. Um, uh, sequenced and assembled at BGI Genomic Institute and now uh, we, we're working with this genome. Uh, we have huge uh, pedigrees, which segregate and behave in these foxes so we can study genetic architecture of these behaviors and to use the whole genome sequence and the single nucleotide polymorphisms map uh, to actually have, finally have good genetic markers. We can do selective sweep mapping within this tame and aggressive populations to identify the regions of increased homozygosity in their genomes and to reduce our QTL intervals. We can do RNA-seq analysis to identify uh, these pathways and we can do imaging studies, which we started to do in collaboration with Dr. Irene Hocht and uh, Todd Prius at Emory University. So this folks, I just want to demonstrate that this fox actually is kind of um, such a deep resource which can give us an information about um, systems which are involved in regulation of behavior which is not so easily available in many other systems. And by synonymism with the dog studies, we can actually see if it is universal or not with these mechanisms, universal or not, involved in domestication and regulation of behavior. But while I still have a few minutes, I want to say about some other features of these foxes. What is interesting that uh, they, even they were selected for pretty stand, kind of standard conditions, like for example, uh, how how foxes would behave to humans than human in approaching the fox cage. It appeared that they, as skillful as a dog puppies, in uh, solving um, some tricks and especially. Uh, um, understanding the human pointing cues. So the Brian Hara visited the farm in Novosibirsk and he set up the pretty easy experiment where you're pointing to, uh, helping to understand the fox where the food is and, and in this bowl or another bowl when fox cannot see in which bowl the food is. It disappeared where the tame foxes understand this test very well, while foxes from um, standard farm bred population don't do it very well. So we, uh, I think that, of course, that uh, uh, because if tame foxes are so comfortable with humans, that maybe help them, but with uh, farm foxes were also socialized very, very well, but, but still we you know, we just didn't do as well in, in this test. As it was mentioned before, the, the socialization period was changed in the tame foxes. The tame foxes do not have that spike of the rise of the cortisol, which, um, Foxes from conventional population do uh, have, or you know, for example, wolves have, and and dogs do not have, which kind of indicates the closure of the socialization period. The tame foxes have very uh, the socialization period open for a long time, and that's actually very very difficult to scare them with something. They are very resilient to any uh, stress conditions, so it can really help them to learn way more about the environment than uh, individuals who have early closed. Uh, socialization window. It's also was interesting that when we started the experiment, we saw a lot of changes in uh, in morphology, in appearance, like for example, with star phenotype, uh, in physiology, and uh, uh, in development. We, we don't really, like physio- physiological changes would include several things. Uh, uh, first of all, it's, it would be a different levels of uh, glucocorticoid, but also some uh, reproduction changes. Some foxes got the opportunity to be reproduced twice per year in difference from uh, the usual foxes which can reproduce only once. Later on, all these features were almost lost uh, from this population, but we never really selected for these features of these animals. We selected continuous selection solely for behavior. But what is interesting when this star phenotype is still present in the population, and when we set up our experimental crosses, uh, we still have some animals which have a star phenotype in this crosses, and we don't really see any segregation between uh, this uh, star phenotype and behavior. So that kind of brings us to the question what were the mechanisms of uh, this co-inheritance of different traits? Is it was pleiotropy? Selection for behavior was actually leading for to changes. Uh, to, to selection for some genes which have f- effect on multiple traits. Is it was uh, genetic drift because it was close populations? Some regions were fixed just in random, or it was a hitchhiking and closely we were selecting for regions on the chromosomes which had several closely linked genes. And our data so far kind of is more in support of the late hypothesis that this particular perhaps, was a hitchhiking, and then um, when the animals were going through several generations of selection, the recombination event in this population accumulated, and these strong bonds between different genes were broken. So in the end, I just uh, would like to uh, summarize a little bit what Fox experiment uh, uh, gave us, provides us with. And first of all, I think one of the most important things is that it's really helped to form the genetically centered view of animal domestication. Second, it's shown that selection, very strong selection for something can actually lead to some other changes. And if they would decide, for example, to select foxes for uh, very repro- reproductive abilities, so they decided that foxes who can reproduce twice per year are better by some uh, reasons than foxes which reproduce once per year, they perhaps could have the opportunity to do if they would kind of follow on that. So that's maybe the way how uh, selection of um, dogs for behavior also worked. Um, and first of all, in the third, uh, which we are, um, I and my collaborators are particularly excited, of course, because we're using it in our work is that they provided us with an excellent model, uh, which have very deep potential to understand, our, to understand the genetic regulation and not maybe genetic regulation of, of different behaviors. So in the end, I would like to thank my collaborators. Uh, this is Dr. Ludmila Truth, this is Greg Eklund, who was my long-term advisor at Cornell. This is a Dr. Gordon Lark uh, from the University of Utah, uh, who is an uh, expert in uh, uh, genetics of quantitative uh, traits in, in uh, and. Um, uh, this is now my lab at at, the University of Illinois, and these people did a lot of molecular work with this study. And uh, of course, I would like, I'm very grateful for support for this research. Thank you.